I'm Gemma Schneider, and this is Where Are They Now? Where Are They Now? is a WHRB original series in which I take a deep dive into the insights and experiences of Harvard alumni who have made an impact. They are trailblazers who have touched the world in ways that they could never have planned for, expected, or imagined when they were students. And now, they are eager to tell their unique stories for the benefit of current students and our wider community of listeners out there. This series is made possible by One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan, our production partner and sponsor. One in a Billion is a nonprofit educational media company whose mission is to foster Asian voices and deepen cross-cultural understanding through podcasts and film productions, blogs, and network events. One in a Billion's founder, Mabel Chan, is also a Harvard alum, class of 93, from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She'll be joining us as a regular commentator and co-host on the podcast. In our first ever episode of Where Are They Now?, I am speaking with Dr. Angela Duckworth, who earned her BA in neurobiology from Harvard in 1992. Angela is now the founder and CEO of the nonprofit Character Lab, a professor at UPenn and the author of the instant New York Times bestseller, Grit. Mabel Chan will join the interview a bit later in the conversation. Angela studies achievement. She's studied teachers navigating really tough schools, cadets pushing through West Point, young finalists competing in the National Spelling Bee, and through her research, Angela has identified grit, a blend of passion and perseverance for a singularly important goal, as she defines it, to be the key trait of high-achieving people across virtually all realms. I read Grit for the first time in high school, and I read it again this summer, and I think it's a type of book that you should read every year, honestly, because the topic of grit is timeless. It's relevant at all walks of life, including our college years, which we talk a lot about today. We also discuss the goals and expectations that are and are not reasonable to impose upon ourselves during our college years, what types of goals and motivations are empirically aligned with success, and which are just pointless and stress-inducing. We also get personal. We talk about taking risks and pursuing nonlinear career paths, how this can be scary and daunting, but worth it for so many people, including Angela herself. What I really loved about this interview is that it was cathartic for me. Like, I put some of my own worries and uncertainties on the table, and we talked about them. So I hope you enjoy and benefit from this conversation just as much as I did. And without further ado, here it is. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Gemma. Do I have your name right, Gemma? Yes, you do. Hi. Okay, so starting out, I just wanted to ask about something that you you kind of talk about this a little bit in grit and you've spoken about it before, um, but you speak about your childhood influences and experiences um, and how your dad placed a lot of value on this idea kind of of genius when you were growing up. And I'm curious how this influence not only impacted your work, but also kind of you as a student in your in your pre-college years and also kind of going into college. You know, I get to reflect on these questions a lot lately because my older daughter, Amanda, 
is a rising sophomore at Harvard College, and watching her go through the beginning of her college career reminds me of what it was like for me in, I guess, 1988. Um, And I think that when I raised Amanda, I tried to do something a little different than my parents did. I think one thing I have in common with my parents is that I care a lot about achievement. Um, I am not saying it's the most important thing in life, but I would be lying if I didn't say that I, you know, I, I care about excellence and, and whatever it is that you do, I said to both of my daughters growing up, I also have a, um, a daughter named Lucy, who's just a year behind Amanda. I said, whatever it is that you do, you know, butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, like do it as well as you possibly can. You only get one shot, um, as Hamilton says. So when I was growing up, I heard the same message, but when my dad talked about excellence, he so often talked about these geniuses who had this innate special talent that was you know, not evenly distributed in humanity. And that, you know, on occasion thinking out loud, my dad would wonder how much actually, you know, got dealt in the deck for his three children. Um, and I feel like the message that would be more helpful, which I tried to um, share with my own two daughters as they grew up and entered, uh, you know, adolescence and now coming into adulthood, that that there is so much that a person has control over uh, that matters to what they will achieve. And excellence is not only a matter of whatever it is we mean by innate talent, but also your interests and you know, your values and how much what you're doing aligns with your interests and values. And then I think mindsets and skill sets uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about growth mindset, the belief that your abilities can change, and then skill sets like how to uh, practice, how to get feedback, how to um, be resilient uh, during difficult times. Yeah, no, one of the things that I love is kind of this growth mindset that you talk about, because I think that for most of my life, and I think this does apply to everyone, and you speak about this taste for for naturals and how people have kind of a bias for naturals. And I think it's it's how a lot of us think. And so I guess something that I also was curious about is like, how long did you have that view of achievement for? And when did it start to change? Because I think like you kind of, you totally upend that perception um, in your work. Some of the best research on this, um, what's sometimes called the naturalness bias, like a bias toward people who we think, um, you know, are are naturals versus people who are strivers, right? Who like figured it out through practice and strategy, et cetera. So much of that work was done by another Harvard alum named Chia Jung Se, who I have to actually think about how this um, works, but I think she has five different degrees from Harvard. Um, but um, but she uh, came to her work um, through her um, music. So she was a very serious pianist. And um, in the conversations um, that happen before, during, and after piano competitions would would, um, notice that people would describe the winners as being naturals. And she knew from what she had to do to compete at that level that so much of it was striving and practice. So I think um, that work is uh, relevant and it's very Harvard, I guess. But um, I'll say for myself, you know, I had a a rebellious streak in some ways. 
uh, when I was a little girl. And, you know, the moment my dad would say X, I would think like, well, what about not X? Um, what about Y? You know, what about Z? So I think from the very beginning, I had my misgivings um, about this. And it's not like I got a daily sermon from my dad about talent. It was just that of kind of implicit in him talking about how smart certain people were and you know, he was always comparing to his siblings and like, who was the smartest among them? And, you know, among the cousins in the family, who was, who was the most intelligent? I think, I think it was implicit that he really did put a lot of stock on, on whatever it is that we consider to be innate intelligence. And I think from the very beginning, I, I, I wanted to, um, you know, challenge that. I will say that I never thought of myself as being, stupid, but I also never thought of myself as being um, even probably like the smartest kid in her homeroom of 30 kids, right? So I, I knew I wasn't dumb, but I, I would never have said like, oh, I'm a natural, like, you know, uh, you know, things come super easily to me that, that, that come very, um, you know, hard one to others. I know something else that you um, wrote about in Grit is like your neurobiology freshman year experience. I'll back up a little for anyone who has hadn't, um, you know, read grit. You talk about how in, in freshman year neurobiology, like your first test, you got a failing grade and the second test you got a failing grade and everyone was telling you, or, you know, the course staff was telling you just drop the class and, and you didn't, and you kept studying and you ended up getting an A on the final one. And so I guess like, Thinking of that also just like as a student now, I think that takes like so much from you. And I'm wondering how, like, I mean, kind of the culture I feel like at most universities is very much take a risk. Like it's not really, it doesn't embrace risk in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm wondering how even like against the backdrop of that culture, you kind of like muster that courage within yourself or, you know, perseverance, which grit is all about. How did you find that, um, especially when people were um, like that wasn't the advice you were getting? That wasn't um, necessarily even what you were hearing from your from your mentors. You know, I recently dug up my Harvard transcript just to see whether, in fact, that class neurobiology was my lowest grade in four years at Harvard, and indeed it was. So yes, I aced the final. But when you average that together with two other grades, um, I think actually out of generosity, the course staff gave me a flat B, which is fine and nothing to be um, uh, embarrassed about. But um, but anyway, that's what the epilogue is. That's how my uh, grade turned out. Um, and then I did eventually major in neurobiology. Again, probably that rebellious you know streak. It's like, well, you know, and I, I talk about that a little bit in the book. But I recently debated that decision actually with an undergraduate of mine who was just about the same age as I was when I was um, struggling with that decision. And she said, because she's got a little rebellious streak, she was like, I don't know that you made the right decision. Decision, that seems kind of dumb to me. Like, why didn't you <laughs> do what you probably should have done, which is to drop the class and go back to bio one and bio two, which I had told her, like one of the reasons I didn't do so well is that in my hubris or my ignorance, I decided that, you know, having taken an AP bio course was like equivalent to taking bio one and bio two at Harvard, which um, just the way I had learned it in my high school was absolutely not the case. And so we we talked about that, and it's not that there was one right answer, or maybe even one clear best answer. I am proud of the answer that I gave. In other words, I'm proud of the decision I made, but I also think I could have been equally proud of a different response, which would have been like, okay, I'm not going to be 
um, defeated uh, ultimately, but I am going to drop this class and then, you know, come back to it when I have more preparation. I think that would have been an equally gritty response, honestly. And also, I know that you have a super high grit score. Were you always so gritty? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good question. Well, um, I will say that in the calculation of a grit score, which is, you know, a questionnaire um, measure that I use primarily for research, I think it can also be helpful for self-reflection. You know, you take the questionnaire, if you if you want to see it, you can go to AngelaDuckworth.com and take it yourself. Um, that, that there's two things that go into your self-reported grit score. So half of the questions on the questionnaire are about perseverance. And half of them are about passion. And I think I would have gotten a pretty high perseverance score, um, you know, maybe not as high as, as now because I've learned a lot, but but pretty high um, for much of my life. I think for passion, though, you know, having interests that were abiding, you know, over years and having a real conviction that, like, I'm doing something that I'm not going to get bored of or want to switch. Um, I think that passion piece, the sustained passion uh, for a long-term goal is something that I struggled with for about a decade after graduating from college. I didn't start my PhD in psychology until I was 32. Um, And also in my data now collected from, you know, thousands of individuals, including um, hundreds and hundreds of undergraduates, um, uh, at my own university and at others, I think most people actually have higher perseverance subscores than passion subscores. So that tells me that for a lot of us, we are hardworking and we are relatively resilient, but we don't know what to work hard at yet. Uh, and so that is the challenge, I think, for people your age, mostly. One of the things I wanted to ask about is kind of you, when you talk about grit, you talk about having kind of a top level goal that all of your lower level goals are pointed or oriented towards. And that concept definitely daunts me a bit because at this point in college, like I'm still not sure re- entirely of what I do want to do. And I know that that something else that you've spoken about is that it's okay to have those feelings of uncertainty, but I still wonder what your take is on kind of navigating that uncertainty, dealing with it at the time. And also how you honed in on, on what you, um, you know, I know like your focus is really using, um, psychological science to help kids thrive. And like, when did that become clear to you that that's what you wanted to focus on? So for this question, Jeff, I'm going to give you a little background and I'm going to tell you what I think right now in 2021, which is actually different than what I, um, you know, thought in 2020 even. So I'll give you a little update on this, but the background on this is that human beings have goals that are, Uh, really desired future states. Like that's what a goal is. If someone asks you, what is a goal anyway? A goal is a desired future state. So it's not happening yet, but you hope it will. And we can have goals at all levels of specificity and abstraction. Um, My top level professional goal is to use psychological science to help kids thrive. That's pretty abstract. It's pretty enduring and long-term. It's not like get a coffee this afternoon, but the idea here about goals being either specific and short-term or abstract and enduring is that human beings have these hierarchies that 
it tends to be the case that when you ask somebody why they have a short-term specific goal, it's because it's in service of something maybe a little less specific and maybe a little less short-term. And then when you build up these goal hierarchies at the very top, you sometimes find that somebody has a unifying goal that gives meaning and purpose and direction to everything below it in the hierarchy. So that's what goal hierarchies are. It's pretty well established that human beings are unlike other animals in that we have much more complex hierarchies like pyramids of goals with different layers and connections compared to like dogs and uh, even like chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I have uh, recently, you know, I don't know if I want to say change my mind, but maybe, um, well, maybe it's changing my mind. I'll just tell you what it is, is that you know, I noticed of very gritty people that they had these very, um, you know, harmonic goal hierarchies where there was like, you know, everything pointing to this one top level goal. And that's why they worked so hard at it. And they had very little goal conflict because they wake up in the morning and everything makes sense. Right. As opposed to feeling tortured and um, tired, you know, when you think of what you have to do versus what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but my update is that I don't know that most people have like a map, a blueprint of goals. There's like two-year goals, five-year goals, 10-year goals, 15-year goals, 20-year goals. Um, In the last few years, I remember having a conversation with Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman, and I was struggling to figure out what I would do in the next chapter of my research career. And I started drawing out these maps and so forth. And, you know, he stopped me and said, you know, do you think anybody, really anybody can know what they're going to be doing more than two or three years from now? Why don't you, Angela, think about your goals over maybe a two or three year time horizon and not really worry too much beyond that? And so my 2021 thinking is this. I think that trying to figure out at your age what you're going to do in the next year is useful. Um, I think that figuring out maybe when you graduate what you're going to do for the next two years can be useful. At my age, I'm 51. I would like to know a rough three-year plan. Again, just so I can have a sense of where to allocate my resources and how to be strategic about that. But I think in terms of your top-level goal, that I think more than having this really big blueprint with, you know, lots and lots of layers. I think that if you have a compass that says like, here are my core values and here are my interests. For me, that would be, you know, my interests are psychology and and probably writing. And then my core values really are about excellence and um, and generosity, and then probably kids, because I just like kids a lot. So they're up there in my value hierarchy. And then that's enough. And that's a compass. And it's like, oh, wait, am I doing things that have to do with psychology and communication? And am I doing it as well as I can? And is it somehow being a generous um, gesture? Like, is it helping people? Like, is it about, great, but I don't need to have everything written out. And in fact, I think Danny Condom is exactly right. So not only should you cut yourself a break um, because of where you are in your life, but also I think it's naive maybe to think that most people operate um, in the in the way that I originally thought. I like that. I, I also like um, kind of the idea that like your top level goal doesn't have to be some like rigid defined thing or like a career, but kind of just like and, and you talk about this too, but like a life philosophy or something like that, um, which, which you said that that's like a tweak to your original statement, but I think that was there too um, in, in grit. 
Yeah. Life philosophy is a phrase that comes from a football coach named Pete Carroll, who would just be tickled yeah, to yeah. know that he was on a Harvard podcast because he likes to point out that he did not go to fancy schools. Um, <laughs> but he is uh, certainly a world-class human being. And I would say a world-class um, psychologist. Um, he's formerly the coach of the Seattle Seahawks football team. And when he got fired from one of his earlier coaching positions, much earlier in his career, he took a whole year to figure out what he was going to do. So he had a kind of premature midlife crisis. And another, uh, coach, I think maybe an older mentor, um, said, you know, you should really write down your life philosophy. Um, you should try to figure out what you're all about. And um, I think that's exactly right, Gemma, that having some abstract, you know, notion of like, you know, the sort of person you want to show up in the world as, the kind of person you want to be remembered as, the kind of thing maybe you want to work on. People have life philosophies that can be extremely abstract. Um, and that is, you know, a little bit less of a, you know, single desired future state, like, you know, I'm going to like win a Super Bowl, but more like uh, for Pete, it's always compete, um, which is layered in meaning because he like goes back to the etymology of compete and he points out that it's not about beating other people, but being your best self. So anyway, I, I think this um, uh, idea of, you know, understanding who you would hope to be, but not torturing yourself about not knowing where you're going to be in five or 10 years is actually um, liberating. I really am uh, very enthralled with the idea of goals. And I really wanted to see if you could go back in um, those first couple of years after college. Did you have any career goals? Was Harvard brand or Harvard degree a uh, an asset for you or liability? We've all had those, you know, a couple of years. Um, well, you and I have, um, not Gemma yet, like those, those couple of years right after graduating, which I think psychologically are so um, challenging, really. For me, I um, uh, was working uh, with kids in a nonprofit that I had started during my senior year. So um, I had uh, created a nonprofit um, and I opened the doors to a summer school for uh, low-income kids in the Cambridge neighborhoods uh, two weeks after graduating. So I didn't have a lot of time for a crisis psychologically. I was just like, you know, riding my bike around Cambridge trying to raise money for this uh, summer school. Um, but I will say that um, it was really um, an interesting two-year period for me because while I was creating this nonprofit, um, my identity was, um, you know, in question because my family expected me to go to medical school. And my dad in particular uh, had assumed I would, with my neurobiology credential, go and pursue, for example, an MD, PhD, and to become a medical school professor like some of my cousins had. Um, and he was deeply disappointed when my dalliance with education and tutoring and kids turned out to be a full-time occupation. And he had all these catastrophizing scenarios about how now I would never go to medical school. Look, I had skipped studying for the MCAT. Oh my gosh, I hadn't even taken the MCAT. So I, I spent two years running this um, nonprofit uh, in the Cambridge neighborhood, uh, then passed it off to you know, um, other leaders. It's still around there actually. It now serves, um, I think something like 20% of the kids in the Cambridge public schools go to this uh, enrichment program. So I'm very 
proud that that is still there. But for myself, I had gone off to Oxford for a couple of years, um, gotten a degree in neuroscience. And then the question was, what was I going to do next? And my dad, I think, had lots of hopes for me that I would do something high status, at least in his book. Mm-hmm. And I decided to, um, you know, at one point, um, uh, after a quick stint in management consulting, become a public school teacher in the New York City public schools. I taught math in uh, middle school. And my dad actually, like, wouldn't talk to me for about six months. He was just speechlessly angry. (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, he didn't disown me. I mean, I don't know what he was doing because he wasn't talking to me, but he just, he just could not utter a sentence in my company because he was just so flabbergasted. So I think we all have our own particular history. I'd personally like to know what you did, but I I think it's a very challenging time that I wouldn't go back to my twenties, honestly, um, for anything, because even though they were a vibrant decade and I learned a lot, they were just really hard for me. And I'm, you know, like a sagging middle-aged lady now, but I still feel like I'm in a more comfortable decade anyway than than my 20s when I was, was like very much struggling with my identity and and every decision felt like you know so weighty and uncertain to me well it was a very courageous thing for you to have done to carve a path of your own that is so different from your dad's expectation I think that was that little rebellious girl coming out again <laughs> It's like, you can't become a teacher. I'll show you. Right. But Angela, you did apply for jobs later on uh, after the uh, two years of being in nonprofit, uh, working with students. And uh, the question really is on the Harvard degree or the Harvard Mm -hmm. brand, you know, going into looking for jobs, everyone is trying to see whether it's an advantage when you have a Harvard degree, is that an asset for you all the time? I, Can you think of any time that <laughs> is not? <laughs> I think that's the question, right? Because quite obviously, it often is, um, you know, a way to open doors. And, you know, I mentioned going to graduate school for my PhD um, starting when I was 32. And I am 100% sure that having graduated from Harvard, even if it was a decade ago, was extremely helpful, right? But in terms of the downside, I do remember this kind of pressure, right? I mean, this is self-imposed in so many ways, but when I was in my twenties and going to, you know, parties or, you know, dinner parties parties. and you're meeting people (laughs) and what do you do? Right. And, and for the times in my life where I was, you know, for example, I'm a teacher, like I'm a teacher in public (laughs) schools, you know, at a Harvard party, of course, everyone says like, oh, that's so wonderful. Like education is so important, but it didn't feel like you got the same response in terms of stature as somebody who's like, I'm at Goldman, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, so, so, uh, or I'm getting my PhD in physics. Right. So, so I think for me, it was, um, uh, sometimes difficult for me to kind of reconcile what I, imposed on myself as the expectations of a Harvard graduate and what I felt I wanted to do, you know, morally or, you know, identity wise in terms of my truest self. So there was some conflict there. Something that I wonder is kind of those years of, of, um, experimentation and like, you know, having different jobs and charting different courses and like figuring out, um, in your early twenties, what you wanted to do. Do you think that you would have been able to like, be where you are without that. Like you talk about it as 
kind of one of the most difficult times. Um, do you think it was necessary? Well, I will say this. I have now interviewed many women and men who have, um, you know, accomplished things in their field, you know, David Chang, the chef and Lindsey Vaughn, the skier and, you know, politicians and Nobel laureates. And um, you can ask these people the question of how they got to where they ended up. Um, and to a one without exception, um, these people will say like it was a surprising and non-linear path. I mean, I'll give you um, a non-Harvard example, but Al Bandura is um, uh, the most cited psychologist alive today. He is in his 90s and he's at Stanford University and um, he's done this, you know, path-breaking work on modeling. Like anytime anyone says like, oh, you have to provide a model for students. Like, you know, role models are really important. That's all Al Bandura. He has a half dozen other um, equally important insights. But you could ask the question, like, why did Al Bandura become a psychologist? Well, it turns out that he needed a ride to campus um, when he was an undergraduate. And he got a ride from these engineering students who had class at nine in the morning. And when they went to class, he had to either sit in the car or make use of the time by taking another class that also happened to be available at nine in the morning, which is exactly what he did. And looking in the course catalog, he thought, what's this thing called psychology? That doesn't sound that bad. And so there are these serendipitous, non-predicted moments. And also, I think for many of us, it takes us a while to figure out something that we enjoy enough to stick with. I'm not saying that everybody has to set off to take a circuitous non-linear path. But my prediction is that for the vast majority of people, that's exactly what will happen. Do you think that um, during the pandemic, like there have been way more calls to kind of like embrace uncertainty. And I think like one of the most daunting things at the start of the pandemic was how like trying and and like unprecedented, like we heard the word unprecedented so many times. (laughs) It got a little nauseating. (laughs) um, But things are always uncertain. And like we, we have kind of an illusion of certainty, but that was completely deconstructed during the pandemic. And I wonder if like with your students or or maybe this is more of like amusing and a prediction mm-hmm. a prediction than like knowing for sure. But do you think that like this kind of these past, you know, it's been over a year now, but that these years have been maybe a step for people being more comfortable with that idea that like we could be charting very like nonlinear paths and whatnot. You know, I really do think that there is a generational shift towards risk aversion. Um, I am not sure there is data to support this, but I know there are others who have speculated that your generation, for example, really wants to get things right. And they're very careful about the classes they take and their extracurriculars and their first job. And it's not that that's bad necessarily, but there is this hesitancy to take a risk and to take a class where you might not get a good grade or to do an activity where it may or may not lead to benefits later on or, you know, a company position where like, well, nobody's even heard of that company. And what about even taking a job where God forbid you got 
inspired. I mean, can you imagine like any Harvard student today, like being able to handle that psychologically? And I think no, that, not even, right? not even me. Like, can you imagine? It's like, oh yeah, I took that job and I sucked at it and I got fired. Like what? <laughs> right. So I think this um, risk aversion, right. This kind of perfectionism, a, a kind of a form of perfectionism is um, really, um, you know, a, a problem, especially when you talk about, you know, the sort of risks that you have to take to, you know, create a startup that nobody has seen before or to, you know, change something in the nonprofit landscape in a really bold, non-incremental way. And um, I read books where I, you know, I'm just just marveling myself. I mean, I am, uh, you know, maybe a little more risk tolerant than you by virtue of being born in 1970. But I read these stories of people who grew up like in 1940 or something, and they're just like, and then that happened. And then, and you know, like Roald Dahl, who wrote, you know, Charlie and the Great, um, uh, Great Glass Elevator, of course, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And, all. and if you read his biography of the crazy things Roald Dahl did, um, I'm not recommending all of them, but you're like, holy smokes, you set off across the desert with a can of gasoline in the back seat, thinking that like probably you would get to the next city. Like, you know, you got into an airplane and figured you would probably remember the things that you're supposed to remember to get it to land. Now, again, I'm not recommending those things, but it does give you a sense of how much there has been a shift. And I, I don't know whether the pandemic is going to like upend that entirely, but I would like to say to young people that, you know, if those things happen to you, like, oh my gosh, you have a startup and it's a disaster or you do a terrible job and they fire you because you're really not a good fit anymore. You will still breathe. The world will still rotate on its axis and you will learn something. And I, I think that um, timidity is not the way to be, um, you know, in young adulthood. I think we should, be, we should be bold. And economists would agree with me that if there is a time to take risks in life, it is exactly the time where you are right now, Gemma. Well, Angela, thank you for that. Um, I want to come back to your book, Grit. It's been five years since you've published Grit. What have you learned from readers, students, friends, and families' feedback that is most surprising or valuable? I think there are two things that I have learned since this book came out, and I'm actually shocked. It's like still on the bestseller list, which I don't truly understand nice. why. Nice, congrats. Anyway, um, yeah, not, not continuously. Not <laughs> <laughs> We're not yeah, shocked, I really Angela. Am. I think even my editor is shocked. But um, I think two things. One is I think that um, people have who have found it helpful, well, certainly not everybody has, um, you know, found it very helpful to have, you know, scientific evidence and a name for who they were for so long. And I think for them, it was very powerful to say like, oh my gosh, there's actually like research evidence that that like this thing that I've always identified myself mm -hmm. as is, is, is predictive of like graduating from West Point and, and doing well in life and, and then having a name for it, right? Having mm -hmm. a name that like grit, oh, that's what I am. Mm -hmm. Like, thank you for telling me, you know, what, what I've felt or intuited that I was. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, um, you know, I've gone back and forth on this. You know, when I wrote the book, I thought, you know, this would be a way to help people. Um, uh, then after the book was out for a couple of years, I thought, I don't think I helped anyone. But now, uh, five years out, um, I think there are at least some people who read a lot of it, if not all, and maybe took 
an insight or a lesson um, or a tip or a hack um, or an idea and, and maybe was benefited uh, by it. If that's true for my book, for even, you know, a small number of people, then, um, then I think it was worth all the work that it took to write it. Absolutely. How about your dad? How does he? Well, my dad actually was towards the end of a, 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 um, well, not towards the end. He was in the middle of a very long fight with Parkinson's Mm -hmm. um, when I finished the manuscript of the book. And I went and I did read it to him. um, And I'm not sure how much he got out of it. um, But I think he, you know, felt some pride, um, which is something that my dad, you know, of all the positive emotions that you could have, joy, surprise, laughter, pride was, you know, the one my dad probably would have chosen for himself and for his daughter. Um, And I do think he felt proud of me. Um, You know, my dad is, um, uh, you know, no longer with us, Um, actually towards the very beginning of the pandemic. I think for me, in terms of, um, you know, something I'd like to leave you with, because I know we're at the end of our conversation, you know, we all know that we have stories about our parents. And I think we all have ideas about our parents. And one thing I'll just say um, is that, you know, I got to know my dad over the 51 years. Um, I guess if I subtract the last year, maybe 50 year, I guess it was probably 50 when he passed away. And during that time, he changed a lot. So whatever you think of your mom and dad, you know, they're, they're, they are themselves human beings who, like you, are growing up. And so we should have a growth mindset, not only about ourselves that we can change, but also about our parents. You know, parents change. And I liked my dad actually a lot more um, as, as we both got older um, than, you know, when I was a little girl. And I think that's because, you know, in many ways, he became a better and better person. Wow. Thank you. I, this is tangentially related, um, but after reading your book too, and like the different parenting styles, I literally went to my parents and and like, I said, you guys, I think you raised us pretty well. Like you, you, (laughs) they're authoritative parents. (laughs) They are authoritative. Yeah. That's Um, wonderful. That's a very good sign. It bodes well for you, Gemma. Um, Well, thank you so much again for being here um, and for having this amazing conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Angela. Yeah, Mabel and Gemma, this is like pure pleasure for me. And um, I am so glad you're doing this podcast. It's such a great idea. This has been Where Are They Now? Produced by myself, Gemma Schneider at WHRB News in Cambridge, in collaboration with One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan. The music for our show was created by Dash Chin of WHRB News. You can also learn more about our podcast partner and sponsor, One in a Billion Productions, by checking out oneinabillionvoices.org or Mabel's podcast, One in a Billion, an interview show about Asian culture and society, one person at a time on Apple iTunes, PRX, or SoundCloud. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Where Are They Now? Tune in for another episode of Where Are They Now? on WHRB 95.3 FM at the same time next week, same place. In the meantime, learn more about our podcast and catch up on old episodes by visiting our website, whrb.org. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or PRX. 